money isn't going to make you perfect. And the more that you can see that, and I did this myself, right? I was like, here's me, this very flawed, you know, imperfect person. And then here's this, oh my God, millionaire Denise is going to be so good at everything. She's going to be super organized. She's going to be perfect. You know, she's never going to procrastinate. She's never going to get angry at her family. She's just going to be this perfect. And you just put this barrier between yourself and that instead of realizing, oh, I'm going to be the exact same person, warts and all, but just with more money. Welcome to Pivot Me, where we give business tips and mental hacks so you can move past your biggest obstacles and live the life you've earned. And now your host, business advisor and performance expert, April Garcia. For years, I made large companies larger and rich people richer. Now I coach driven entrepreneurs to hack success, create more time and get better results through high performance habits, the multiply me method, and a little mental gymnastics. On Pivot Me, I talk to thought leaders and experts sharing our successes, our many scrubs, and how we can all use both to move us to the next level. Join us and learn real simple steps to pivot you and your business towards the life you've earned. Our guest today publicly published their tax returns. No, no, it's not who you're thinking. Today, we're talking to Denise Duffield Thomas, best-selling author of the books, Lucky Bitch, Get Rich, Lucky Bitch, and her latest book, Chill and Prosper. She works with the new wave of entrepreneurs that want it all, the money, the freedom, and apparently the chill. She works with people on releasing their money blocks, charging premium prices, and owning their worth in the marketplace. Her Money Mindset course has helped tens of thousands of people create financial freedom. And today, she's sitting down with us. If you are someone struggling with charging more, think that you might have a money block, or just wondering, hey, did some of the money messages I got from my childhood, are maybe they getting in the way of my financial success? Maybe you got messages like, filthy rich, Wealthy people are greedy. They use people. Many of us got bad messaging about money when we were young. Now we can change all that. This podcast is for you. Thank you so much, Denise, for joining us today on Pivot Me. Oh my gosh, April. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk about self-sabotage. It's one of my favorite topics ever. And I do it all the time too, by the way. Good, good. I'm so glad. So obviously we're going to touch on the books that you've written and both your specialty. But before Denise and I went live, I said, hey, so here's something that we talk about. So we kind of come in under the guise of high performance, which is so important and and habits and, and all of that piece. We have these pillars that we work on. However, the foundation of all of that is mindset. And if we've got the wrong mindset, if we are self-sabotaging and we're unaware of it, no amount of high performance, no amount of goal setting can outdo a self-sabotaging mindset. So I definitely want us to touch on that. So Denise, can you talk to us about how you got into this type of work? I And, and I want you to share the story in a second. I, I heard the story about when you were in corporate America and I think you were in London and you were practicing your pitch on your speech on what it would look like when you left corporate America. And I'm trying to imagine the catalyst that drives you out of there and and how you get to this type of work. Well, I can really pinpoint it. And it is growing up watching Oprah after school. I really think that planted the seed of wanting to help people 
and expanding my mind to what was possible. So she really did teach me so many things after school, things like about breaking the cycle. And I knew from listening to her show that my family was in an unhealthy cycle of dysfunction. And I mean, I just learned so much about different techniques and books and things like that. But when I was 14, I was in a the secondhand bookstore that I used to go to after school because every day I would forget my keys because I had undiagnosed ADHD. I was just about to ask you. <laughs> I was like, we haven't talked Classic. long enough for me to ask, but yeah. Okay. Yep. I got diagnosed a year and a half ago, but I would go there every day after school because I couldn't get into my house and I would just read books in the, I never really bought anything, but I picked up this book one time. It was called The Magic of Believing by Claude M. Bristol. And it's one of those old school kind of law of attraction-y books that that kind of masquerade as a bit of like, I don't know, like a sales manual for men, you know, those kind of motivational books for men. And, but it really changed something in my mind. One, I realized that I could control my thoughts and I could use things like affirmations to help me with my, my feelings and my anxiety and my fears. And so it was a really life-changing moment. And so that led me to, you know, other books about goal setting and things like that. And so I was always interested in that field. I didn't think I could personally work in it though. I just was someone who was like, oh, I read this book. You need to read it. Or after school with my friends, I'd be like, let's write our goals down. I became that kind of kid, which is really funny because of the background I came from. Some of my more middle-class friends their parents were a bit wary of me because I always had messy hair and, you know, I didn't come from a, like I came from a single parent family. And so I think they were a bit like, what are they, what is she teaching my daughter? And is she going to be a bad influence? And I was literally going, let's write down five things that we're grateful for. This is what (laughs) Oprah has told us to do. But I didn't really know how to translate that into a job. And so I did a a marketing degree, which took me like five years to finish a three-degree ADHD. And I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers for a couple of years. I was just a fish out of water. I really was. I didn't know how to play politics. I didn't know how to play the game. I got hives from wearing suits. And it was just, it was a really stressful experience being in that environment. And then for the, probably for the next six or so years, I would go in and out of corporate, try and start a business, a bit of nonprofit work. And I just was going around in circles trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And what actually was a catalyst for me, I went on honeymoon with my husband and everything in my life was pretty terrible, actually. Like, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a career. I was just really unhappy. The weather was getting me down living in London, but I had this amazing partner. And so we went on honeymoon and I went outside and I made a wish. And it's like that moment in Big, you know, the movie Big, where he makes a wish. I wish I could be big. For me, I was like, more of this, please, universe. More of this. I want freedom and adventure and abundance and warmth and sun. And and it's so funny sometimes how powerful those wishes are because I came home and a friend sent me a message a little while later saying, I um, found this perfect job for you. And it was a honeymoon competition, like a, a travel competition hmm. to um, for a honeymoon company to go traveling around the world, all expenses paid, having honeymoons for six months. And blogging about it. And so that wish was really powerful, right? Because I was like, more of this. I didn't mean literally honeymoons. That's what I asked for and that's what I got. And that six months trip was such a catalyst for me because it made me realize, wow, we really can achieve anything that we want if we ask for it and, and work towards it. 
But then that led me to then becoming a life coach, then becoming a business coach, then talking about money. And so that's really my journey. And it really still comes from a place of, I just want to help people. I want to share what I have learned and help people break the cycle in their own lives. Yeah. I'm curious about this cycle. Let me ask the most obvious question, which is, did you know other business owners at the time? Like when you, you said, I, you know, off and on try to start businesses, did you know other business owners? I didn't know that many actually, especially in my early twenties, I would go to any business conference, networking conference that I could find. And I would often be the only woman. And I was often the youngest in the group. And so I was kind of, yeah, I was like, where are my pants? And then I found out about a lady called Allie Brown and she was hosting a conference in, I want to say Vegas or something like that. And someone gave me a ticket and I went and it was all women like hundreds of women in the room. And she said, I was a millionaire by 35. And I was just looking at her and I was thinking, she's real. Oh my God. I went, I'm going to be a millionaire by 35. And I set that intention. I didn't have a business. And actually I had some practice businesses that led me to the next stage, but I did it two weeks before my 36th birthday. So it took me five, pretty much five years from that day. And so again, it's just so powerful to make that declaration. And then recently I made another declaration. I was like, I want to retire by 45. And I know I don't mean not work. I love what I do. But, you know, that definition of not having to work would be amazing. And it's funny that even since making that declaration probably about a year or two ago, I can see the cogs turning and things have shifted and opportunities have come in that it's going to be a reality. And I'm 44 this year, so I'm going to do that one a year early, I think. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. How much do you think it was both the declaration, but also seeing someone else that had achieved millionaire by 35? That was everything. Yeah. That was everything. And similarly, I remember my first year of business seeing someone, you know, who made $5,000 in a month. I went, I know them. And then someone who made 30,000 in a month, I was just like, I know that person, you know, that could be possible. It makes it real. It makes it real. Absolutely. And so if you don't have examples of people like that, you really have to seek them out, Um, seek them out. You know, I always tell people curate your social media feed to see what you want to believe for yourself, be in masterminds, listen to podcasts. And I'm in a real writing phase of my life at the moment. And so I'm, I'm listening to podcasts about writing because I want to normalize that conversation for myself. And that's so much of it is normalizing it. Cause if you've never seen it, it's really hard to believe it's possible for yourself. And so going to that conference, it changed everything for me. You're absolutely right. So one of the things that we talk about here at Pivot Me a lot is a designed peer group versus a default peer group, which is actually my next book where we talk about actually designing a peer group around who you're going to be, not who you were. But here's the key to this. Yes, there's the networking opportunities that open up and the mentorship and all those things. But at the most fundamental level, we're normalizing success at the thing we're about to do. And you can't say it's too hard to write a book when I have two young kids at home. If you go to coffee once a week with people who've written a book that have two young kids at home, you can't say, oh, I can't do a 75 hard challenge. I'm, you know, I'm a mom. And well, that excuse is gone when you go and do that. Or you want to run a marathon and you're talking to other people that are over 50 that run marathon, whatever your particular flavor of excuse is, 
it tends to get diminished if you design a peer group around where you're headed, not just normalizing where you've already been. And that and that's so key. So as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, she normalized success. And then you got to see what that looks like and that those are actual people who achieved actual results. Like this isn't just some infomercial where it's maybe a testimonial, maybe it's an actor. I mean, it's the real deal. And then you see them and you go, whoa, I want what they have. And it's important to say, what did they do to get it? And some of those things are going to apply to you and some of them aren't versus just saying, oh, they must have had a lucky break or they must have known someone or must have been nepotism or all the ways, again, that we're really justifying how someone else's success is not available to someone like us. Oh, absolutely. And actually, you said that about being a parent thing. I remember before I had kids, you know, I was already starting to create a lot of financial success. And I had this story that that was all going to go away if I had kids, because I didn't know any real life people who both loved their business and, you know, were a parent. I, and cause I was joining mums groups locally and people would just be like, I'm so happy to have given up work. You know, I'm so happy to, I'm enjoying every second of this. And I was like, but I still have my business. And it, it changed my brain to start talking to people and they go, you're going to still love your business. It's fine. This is how you can handle it. You know, giving me permission to have a nanny and to get help. I really needed that. And it's kind of the reason why I'm so honest about everything in my business. I, I publish my tax returns every year. Yeah. Because I want people to go, I'm paying $700,000 in tax and it's okay. It's okay. And, you know, and I make mistakes around my money. I probably shouldn't have spent this on, you know, this, this, and this, and that's okay because money isn't going to make you perfect. And the more that you can see that, otherwise we start, and I did this myself, right? I was like, here's me, this very flawed, you know, imperfect person. And then here's this, oh my God, millionaire Denise is going to be so good at everything. She's going to be super organized. She's going to be perfect. You know, she's never going to procrastinate. She's never going to get angry at her family. She's just going to be this perfect. And you just put this barrier between yourself and that instead of realizing, oh, I'm going to be the exact same person, warts and all, but just with more money. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's, it's so interesting because we we're looking at everyone else's highlight reel and we're living our own messy backstory. And then it just makes us feel that much farther apart from the people. I remember I told this story recently that through a series of events, anyways, I was, I had a client <laughs> that got in my car one time and clients usually don't see my car or get in my car. And we had a, we had a mastermind event and she got in my car and she kind of looked around and she goes, huh? And I said, what? She goes, I didn't expect you to have a messy car. And I was like, I have two kids that eat fishy crackers and skis that go in the back every week. And it was funny to her, like it was this moment and I was like, oh gosh, is this why you don't like, you know, meet people that you look up to because they, <laughs> I, like, are you suddenly disappointed in this image you have? No, I'm just, I'm a person with so many flaws and so many mistakes and, and I'm good at some things. And those are the things that I might get highlighted for and all the other things we have those too. And so I love that you're like, Hey, here's this thing I've done really well. Like I've made a financial success of myself. Yes. I've run this business. Well, yes, but I still got these other things that I'm like, oh, I do that and I probably shouldn't have, or I've made this mistake and I've learned some lessons from it. I think just humanizing success like that is so important, both not playing small, earning, or rather like leaning into your skill set and your expertise, but then also maintaining that humility of like, yeah, I got some things right and I got some other things I still need to learn. Totally. Uh, my car's a mess too, by the way, if it makes you feel any better. <laughs> Hold your kids. Mess. 
My daughter's nine. She's turned nine today. And then I've got a six and a half year old and a four and a half year old. And because it was Willow's birthday, she was really excited. So she got up at 5 a.m. this morning to do presents. The other two had meltdowns because they were jealous. We went out for breakfast. It's torrential raining here for some reason. They all got wet on the way to school. Hubby forgot to charge his phone so we couldn't order breakfast for everyone. You know, it was just one of those days where it was just like everyone's having a meltdown. And that's cool. Like it's going to happen. It's totally normal. Absolutely. Gosh, if we could just let people know that it's like you're human and everybody else is human. And even the people you're looking at on Instagram or LinkedIn or wherever you're going, it always happens where this, the moment someone sees that the keynote speaker is like on the side of the stage doing deep breathing because they have anxiety attacks or like they see that they're on a phone with their spouse and they argued with their spouse before they went up and gave a talk on Like it's because people are human. And that's so important to recognize because Otherwise we think they have something we don't have. And when we, we hold someone, right. Then they're like, oh, well, they are just really good. They are really talented. They're brilliant. And it's like, well, okay. There's, there's some things they do well. Mm -hmm. And I don't. They deserve it. And I don't, by the way, that's why I don't do any speaking engagements in my town because I want to be able to yell at my husband in like Home Depot, have meltdowns. And cause someone actually did say, she's like, I did see you once. Ours is called Bunnings. It's like Home Depot. Because I did see you at once in Bunnings and I wanted to say hi, but you were yelling at your husband. I was like, yep, that sounds, that sounds right. It's yeah, every home sure. improvement project in our house. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we all have different perspectives on how that should go down. We're selling our house at the moment. And so, of course, everything's staged to perfection, right? You know, the towels, the little soaps everywhere, all of that stuff. And so we're just in this constant state of like, don't touch that towel, don't. And as soon as the viewings are over on the weekend, we're literally putting like a drop sheet on our couch and everything like that. And it's so funny because you're presenting this very perfect kind of lifestyle. But the other day I went to use, you know, the brand new beautiful hand soap and my son, George, was like, that's for sure you have to use that. He's learned. <laughs> He's learned. Exactly. Oh. We used to sell, buy and sell a lot of real estate in my household too. And so we'd have staged properties and we had one house that was staged for Oh, it was during the downturn and it was like a year and it was awful. But then you also appreciate how much of your stuff you don't need because it was all out in the garage. And I was like, oh, we actually don't need all these things because we've lived without them. I think I'm going to take boxes because I, you know, have all the kids stuff in boxes. I'm just going to go, no one's going to miss, no one's going to miss that. But actually that's the one thing that Mark and I get real, like we argue so much about business we work together. He works in my company, but we love property and we make such quick decisions on property. We work really, really well together of making selections and stuff. And so we're doing that at the moment, you know, thinking about our new house, we're doing plans and Pinterest boards and all that kind of stuff, but everything else we do bicker a lot about. Don't come say hi in bunnies. Was it bunnies? Bunnings. Bunnings. Okay. All right. Don't say hi to her there. So let's talk about this money mindset. So before we went live, we were talking about how even as a business advisor, I bump up against this all the time. And I was on a call, actually, we were on the Pivot Me Academy call earlier today. And one of the the ladies, she owns a digital marketing company, and she was talking about this new offer. And she goes, I really want to price it at 10 or 15K. But every time I go to hit publish on my website, I hesitate. Now, there are people on the call that have 100K offers, 
but she's got something in the back of her mind saying, oh, 10, 15K is the limit. Like that's, or you're past that limit. So I'm sure you've run into this a lot. So let's talk about what a money mindset is and where it comes from. Absolutely. So ideally we'd all have this perfect mindset in business. We have something for sale. Someone needs it. Happy exchange. Mm -hmm. We both go away. And that's not what happens. In between even putting yourself out there, a lot of stuff can come up for people around visibility. Am I worthy? Am I ready? Am I qualified enough? And then all of the second guessing that goes into pricing, is this too much? Am I not giving enough? Am I enough? Will someone pay for this? And then even in the transaction, am I being too salesy? Am I overpromising? Are they going to be happy? Are they going to ask for a refund? Oh, I can't ask for a testimonial. So it's very simple transaction that we absolutely overcomplicate. And so every person has their own foundation of beliefs and stories that have been developed not only over their own lifetimes, but they're often born into families that have unspoken stories and beliefs and rules about money. The era and time that you grew up in will have its own part to play in that. The culture that you grow up in, the country, the city, all of those things. And then of course, how your parents talk about money. And even sometimes the contrast between you and other kids. So, and this is what I find so fascinating. I say to people, did you grow up poor, middle-class, wealthy? How did you grow up? And it's not so clear cut, right? Because sometimes they'll say, I thought we were poor, but my family were actually really wealthy. They were just extremely frugal and scared about money. Other people will say, I thought we had lots of money. And it really, I found out later that we actually didn't have that much money, but we felt so abundant and everything in between. And the thing that I love about my work is just pulling at those threads and helping people see that all of those business decisions aren't just happening in this perfect vacuum. They're influenced by all of these factors. And so I call it excavation work because you really have to dig in a little bit and you find those little nuggets of gold where you go, oh, my parents said it's impolite to talk about money. That's why I can't say the price on a discovery call. Okay. That makes so much sense. And sometimes just that awareness gives you compassion for yourself enough to then do something about that, to get some sales training or just acclimatize yourself to saying, you know, saying the price or even just, you know, affirmations. It's safe for me to talk about money. That's the work that I do. And I find that it's so multi-layered that it doesn't matter how long you've been in business, doesn't matter how much money you make, you always find new layers to it. And I find new layers all of the time, either old stories that I've told myself, new nuances about those old stories, or because I have a community where everyone's sharing their own, there's some that I go, oh, I never even thought about that one. Oh, that's great. And otherwise we kind of internalize it and we go, oh, it's because I didn't get good grades in math or it's because nobody likes my thing, or it's because I've got so many competitors, or people don't like me, or whatever it is, instead of realizing that so much of that is our own stuff, our own default thoughts about money. So if someone's listening right now and they're thinking, okay, well, I think this applies to me. Some of the ones that I've seen, I mean, just again, I always try to take it out of the theoretical and put it into the practical. So 
With the clients that I've worked with, what I've seen is there's a lot of, depending on your religion or spiritual background, there's a lot of guilt around the pursuit of money. I'm thinking about two people in particular who really bumped up against it. In fact, even our implementation coach, Chris, you know, his father was a deacon and he felt very conflicted about the fact that he wanted to pursue money. And when he tried to deny the fact that he wanted to be rich, he felt like he wasn't really being himself. And, you know, he had this tie in with, okay, well, in the pursuit of money is bad. And then he finally redefined it, but he lost a lot of years in between where he had this push-pull relationship with it. And we've seen this a few other times. That's just one example. The other thing we've seen a lot of is, you know, parents giving a messaging around the filthy rich. They're greedy. And so they they kind of give these attributes of wealthy people that are not true. And oftentimes wealthy people are the most generous of donors, but they kind of take on this narrative. And again, even if they're part, even if we work together and they're building this business and they're aggressively pursuing it, right? They're doing the goals and the habits and all those sorts of things, but there's this rub, like something's just not working. And oftentimes I think it's around the money mindset. I think it's around that they have a belief that if they were to be wealthy, they too would be greedy. They too would be part of this community of people that are taking advantage of others. Is that what you work with? Is that what you've seen? And can you speak to that? Well, of course, it's just another layer of that. You know, I didn't grow up with religion at all, but I do see that it's just, it's another factor, right? But what's fascinating about that is go to a church service. Most churches are really good at asking for money. They do it often three times, right? In a service. And so that's one of those things where it feels like it has to be either or. I can be a good person and go to heaven, or I can be a rich person, you know? And But I find that everyone's got their own version of that, regardless of if they grew up in religion or not. It could be, I can be a good mother or be wealthy. I can be an environmentalist or be wealthy. I can really care about my clients or be wealthy. And that's when you hear people say things like, I don't care about the money. I just want to help people. Money is not my motivator. I just want to help people. And I find too, it's very industry specific sometimes because I see a lot of health coaches who come to me and in their training, they are told, I hope you're going into this for the right reasons, you know, and the right reasons are to help people not make money as if it has to be both. And so I see that a lot. And I think everyone's foundation is made up of so many different, unique layers. So we've got a philosophy in, in my course, Money Bootcamp. We say, throw everything at it. You know, come at it from every single angle you can possibly think about. And one of the first exercises to get people to do is just to do an inventory of anything they can remember about money. You know, and we've got prompts there of like, did you get pocket money? Do you have any stories around that? What about school? Did anyone steal money from you? What about jobs? What about old bosses? What did your family say? All of these things, because you start to see very clear themes and then you can start to pull together, like, what's the flavor of my own money mindset? And sometimes it's really looking at not only the things that your parents said about money or your family said, it's what are the unofficial kind of mottos and messages that you got. And in our family, a very matriarchal kind of thing in my family, as in the women were my mainstays and the men came and go because they all had bad husbands and stuff, right? And so they would always say to me, like, never trust a man, don't ever get married. And so I developed this very strong independent streak for a long time. And of course, they're trying to, in a way, they were trying to help the next generation break the cycle. But instead, I have to unlearn 
I have to do it all myself. Nobody's going to help me. You know, I can't hire people. I can't trust people to help me. All of those things. And so that's not anything really to do with money necessarily. My family actually very rarely talked about money, but it was all of those other subtle things that you might learn. Even something like a family story of like, oh, Uncle Bob was an entrepreneur and he went bankrupt. And that could just put that fear in you that it's a scary thing. Those stories when you're young are so much more powerful. We could hear the same stories when we're older and they don't have the impact, but when we're young and impressionable, they are transformative. We mentioned earlier about investing in real estate. So I became a real estate investor very young and which meant that everybody would line up to give me real estate advice, particularly people that have never invested in real estate. And so all you do is get story after story about like, well, so-and-so lost all their money and -and so-and-so tried this and failed. And it was amazing to me. And that was kind of my first experience of, and I was young, I was 19 or 20. It was the first experience when I went, oh, wait, I can't listen to kind of what I kind of concluded at the time was I couldn't necessarily listen to adults. What it ended up transforming into is I couldn't listen to people that had no experience in the advice they were dispensing. But that was really hard because when you step out and and pivoters, it doesn't matter if we're talking about investing in real estate. It doesn't matter if we're pursuing wealth. When you step outside of the lines that have been drawn for you, even by well-intentioned family members, partners, siblings, all of that, there's going to be some pushback. Denise, did you experience any of that? Do you experience any pushback? Well, one of my first, I mean, I I tried lots of different business ideas for sure, but I remember when I became a coach, a life coach, and I resisted it for a long time because I knew that I was going to get this reaction. People would just be like, you're so young. Like what advice have you got to give people? And explaining that it wasn't about, it's not about giving advice to people, but, and do you know what the first person who said this to me, it was so strange. We were going to see a property and they were like, you know, what do you do? You had to put in an application. It was like the first time I declared to anyone, oh, I'm a life coach. And they went, you're a bit too young to be a life coach. And I just remember thinking, oh yeah, like, okay. So I definitely got that. Same with writing, you know, it'd be like, well, what life experience have you got? Or are you qualified to do that? Definitely things like that. But it's funny, actually, people would ask me as a kid what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I remember saying to them, well, you know, I want to be a dancer. I want to be a writer, but I want to make money. So I'll probably work in an office. And it was like, how did I even think that at such a young age that you couldn't be a creative person? It's really interesting. Someone along the way said that to you, or you saw it on TV, represented on TV. There was somehow that that connection was made for you. And, and that's the thing, that's the thing is that we've got to get curious about those messaging that we got. Because the problem is when they stay unconscious, they're guiding us, but it's really the decisions that we don't know that we're making that are the really dangerous ones. So we get it was the solo podcast we just recorded this morning, which was the big macro decisions in our life, they get our time and attention. It's these little micro decisions that we're unaware of that we're making that those are the scary ones. Those are the ones that like, no, I would like to be a writer or a dancer, but I want to make money. So I'm going to go work in an office and the office job might be something you you hate and leads to an unfulfilling life. But it's those little messaging we got and then those decisions. And if we can just become aware of those decisions. So I love that you said I would take an inventory of kind of things that experiences that you had around money or stories or you know, things along the way when you were a child that sort of shaped your view of the money mindset, what do they do then? Like once they have that and go, okay, I've got this list of 15 memories that I've got around money, what happens now? So 
there's a couple of things. There's a, a process that I teach called OCP. So it's origin stories, connect the dots and to see how it shows up for you, get aware of the cost of it and the consequences of that. And then P stands for pattern interrupt. And pattern interrupters can be short or long-term. Long-term are things like joining masterminds, normalizing a different conversation. Pattern interrupters can be in the moment, like using something like emotional freedom technique. As soon as you've discovered a belief, it can be Sometimes we need therapy. Sometimes we need to work with professional to help us dig into some of those stories. And so that's the process that I, I teach again and again as a in the moment thing when you discover a block, but also kind of a long-term philosophy. And what's interesting is that you don't have to start with the origin stories because some people don't remember until they realize that there's a problem. And so you could start at the consequence at the connecting the dots and go, why can't I send invoices? why is it so hard for me to send invoices? And then you can go back and go, well, yeah, because my third grade teacher said that I was really bad at math and I'm really scared that I'm going to screw these invoices up and I'm going to get into trouble for it. That's my example, actually, because I'm not good at math. I've got dyscalculia, which is like dyslexia for numbers. And so for a long time, I connected being bad with math with money. Because in my mind, they were the same thing. And so I was too intimidated to do things like investing and stuff like that because I was going to, I was afraid I was going to screw it up. I was too afraid to hire a bookkeeper at the start of my business because I thought that they were going to like go, oh my God, she's so stupid. She can't even do her own numbers. Well, also you had a hard time trusting people too. So I imagine that didn't make it easier to put your finances in someone else's hands either. Exactly. And so then the pattern interrupter for that could be, again, being around conversations of people talking about money and realizing you don't have to be perfect with it. Affirmations and doing some mindset work and doing some EFT, things like that have always really helped me. And, but then you find a new layer of that, you know, and it's just that constant work of being in that conversation. But also, again, it's just having someone to talk to about that because sometimes the curiosity in yourself is great, but being able to share it with others is very, very powerful being able to talk about things honestly. Because I always find for me, if I talk about my flaws and my mistakes honestly, then I don't feel as embarrassed about them. And I feel like then it's being of service, helping people talking about those rather than just thinking that I'm the only one. I feel like, oh, my mistakes are useful. That is gold. That's why, you know, there's kind of like this movement on social media about like hustle in silence and then come out and surprise them all. And I think it's total bullshit because when they say that, I'm like, you're only doing it to protect your ego. Someone should watch your pursuit because someone needs to see that it's available to someone like them. Like they need to see you get up and try and like join 75 hard and get to day 13 and then quit and then start again. Like whatever that is, someone needs to see you pursue it because it's giving them permission to pursue it as well. And so if we wait to step into the spotlight after it's all curated perfectly, then the only person it protected was us. The only person it served was us versus if you kind of bring people into the things again that you do well and the things that you struggle at, it kind of, it gives them permission to pursue it. And it also goes, oh, well, if they struggle like that, then I guess my struggles aren't so unique. They're not so insurmountable. I think it also helps us with imposter syndrome too, right? Because it's almost saying, well, I am telling you I'm scared and I am telling you that I made mistakes. So you're never going to find out that I'm a fraud because I'm just telling you. <laughs> That's really, that's helped me a lot. Hey, Pivoter, I see you taking notes. I see you applying things into your business and life. Great work. But what if you could do it on a Zoom call with me? Well, here is your invite. 
I am hosting a free live event on Zoom where I get to know you, your challenges, and help you work through them as we accelerate your growth together. This is a free virtual event, and I'd love for you to join. Hop over to pivot-me.com backslash event and save your spot now. We'll keep these small. They will fill up. I'd love for you to be there. Again, it's pivot-me.com backslash event. We'll also put the link in the show notes and I'll see you there. Denise, a question for you. So I'm just thinking about sort of the identity piece. So you've been very honest and very vulnerable on our interview and you've mentioned things like, Hey, I lost my keys and I struggle with ADHD. And also, you know, I also have a challenge with numbers and I could see that these are lots of things that could potentially give you an identity of I'm not meant to be a business owner. I'm not meant to deal with numbers or certainly not finances. How did you kind of overcome that piece? Well, I think for a long time, I did have that belief. You know, I really thought, no, that's, it's not even I thought it was for someone else. For one, I didn't realize that that was a job. And again, you know, growing up watching Oprah, I was like, she inspires people, but that's not a job for a normal person. Like she's a one in a billion person. And so I think I did have a lot of imposter syndrome around that. But also, I think I just always had the desire for freedom and creativity. And I realized that I didn't really fit in in the corporate world either. And so it wasn't until I think I found my community of other female entrepreneurs that I kind of just went, well, why not me? I can try. Why not? That's really helped me even now. I just think, well, why not? Why not me? I'm allowed to do it. And I've been saying to people recently, I'm saying, nobody can stop you. Like nobody can stop you from self-publishing or starting a podcast. And so often people are waiting for someone to tap them on the shoulder and say, you're ready now. Like your apprenticeship is over. And so nobody can stop you. But the bad news is that nobody can make you either. And so you have to be self-motivated. And what I find is that when I have put myself forward for things, rather than people go, hang on, what are you doing? They just believe, oh, you've got a podcast now. How great. I go, they believe me. Oh my God, this is crazy. And same with writing and, and publishing books. You know, at the start, you're like, you've got published books. And I kind of go, yeah, I guess I do. Yeah, I do. And that took me a little while, but you just realize that people just believe you. Yeah. It's, I love this concept of nobody taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, your apprenticeship is over. And here's the kind of, to lift the veil, the secret behind high performance guys, the people out there that you see doing it, whether that's the people that have the million hits for their Ted talk or the people that are the, the authors or the song that gets played on the radio, it is not the best song ever written. It is not the best book ever written. Like there is this, we've got this, you know, when you're in the audience and you're looking on the stage, you've got this false belief that it is the best that get on the stage, but it often is not the best. And I'm sure you've seen the same thing. It's the people that have the courage to say, why not me? And that's such a transition from why me to why not me? Well, I've got a great example and it it changed my mind on this, right? So my friend, Laura Roda, who is an amazing businesswoman. I remember she got an award and it was like Obama's 30 under 30. And it was like 30 entrepreneurs who are doing amazing things in the world. And I was like, oh my God, how did you get this? And she's like, Denise, Obama's not sitting there Googling, like who are the 30 best entrepreneurs under 30 in America? I applied for it. Heck yeah. And I was just like, oh, I get it. And see that now it's, it's who you know, 
It's who you put yourself in front of. It's the networking you do. And it's putting yourself forward for things because a lot of those people who, who are collating those lists, they don't have time. It's not like there's tests and auditions for it, right? They're literally what's easy for me to do. And that blew my mind because I just went, oh, yeah, there's no secret. And there's no doubt that a lot of people who do get on those lists, it is because of their connections and their background and things like that. So sometimes, you know, people, especially from marginalized communities or marginalized backgrounds or, you know, women of color, like they unfortunately have to fight a little bit more to get onto those lists. And so now we're in a place where we do have to make sure that we are seeking out the people who wouldn't put themselves forward for things. But yeah, Laura Rada, she really blew my mind with that because I just went, oh, of course. I think that's, uh, you, you touched on something so important. And then in a second, I want to, I want to talk about the archetypes. I heard you speak about this recently and I thought oh, I that was really, that. yeah. So let's talk about that in just a second. But one of the things that I want to point out is I love that she says, I, I applied, I put myself in the room where it happens. And that's, that's the problem. A lot of people are waiting for a shoulder tap and go, Hey, we're ready for you now. That doesn't come. That doesn't work like that. It's you knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. Sometimes they open up the door and go, hey, not you. They shut the door. And then you keep knocking and then, hey, it's, it's not time yet. You're not good enough. But it's the persistence. It's the keep knocking. It's the consistent execution that that gets you there. And I was working with a business owner last week, a PR firm, and, and this happens so often. And it's just so relevant to what we're talking about, where they were saying about, they were able to articulate to me, their business advisor, all the ways that their product served their audience. And they're like, well, we do this and we do this and we did it. And I said, great. I go, what's your elevator pitch? Because they were going to a conference. And she's like, um... And I was like, well, what would you say if, if I met you at the conference? Well, it's kind of hard to explain what I do. And you have not done enough work on your sales pitch if you say it's hard to explain what I do. The point being is that she thought all her energy was going into the product development, like this remarkable product. And that's what we do. We do that even with ourselves. We're like, well, I'll just keep making me better, me better, my product better, my product better. But you can have the cure for cancer in your garage, but if nobody knows about it, it doesn't help anybody. And I think people just think that if they perfect the process, they perfect their product, they perfect themselves, then someone, some like cosmic <laughs> selector is going to go, hey, you, it's your time. You've thought about it. You've manifested it. Yes, you got to think about it. Yes, you got to imagine yourself there. But then you also have to keep raising your hand over and over again and saying, pick me, pick me, I'm ready. Even when we sometimes don't feel entirely ready. Well, you've got to meet the universe halfway, right? And you've got to put yourself in the opportunity of it. And also I find too, now that, you know, I have money now, I, it's opened my eyes. I go, everything's a buyable experience. Everything is a buyable experience. And so people say, how do I get into this amazing mastermind? I go, you find a mentor you want to work with and you buy into their program. You can just do that. And, and I, when you said the room where it happens, so I'm obsessed with Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, Totally. Um, like, so I, saw, I saw a fist pump or something there. I was like, ah, Hamilton fan. <laughs> I've been to the Hamilton premieres in Australia because we've got a, a tour in Australia at the moment. I've been to the Melbourne premiere, the Brisbane premiere, and Lin-Manuel Miranda is coming to Australia in a couple of weeks. And I have a ticket already to go see him, which is a, they're doing it as a lottery system. And, and it's like, how do I get it? I invest in musicals. And so I'm on the list. I'm on the list now. Whenever there's a new musical that that production company is producing, I'm on that list to go and see them. And it's one of those things you just realize you can literally just buy anything and there's no room that you can't be in if you want to be there. 
And it's very rare that it's been specially selected and picked randomly out. Yeah. And you can just put yourself there. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. You have to get past the awkwardness. Like you have, because one of the things that we talk about here is that a lot of us, we self-select. We reject ourselves before anyone else has the opportunity to reject us. I tell a story about this client that had this huge opportunity to buy out his competitor, and he wasn't even going to go to the negotiation table because he was convinced that he needed to have, I think it was two or $3 million liquid. And he's like, I'm not even going to go. I don't have that much money. I can't. I can't. Where am I going to get that kind of money? He was a smaller business. And, and I was like, you have to go to the meeting. And he said, I, I'm going to make a fool of myself. Like, So he ultimately was rejecting himself before he had an opportunity to reject. Now, after... A lot of convincing. He got on the plane. He went to the city, went to the table. Sure enough, they're like, this is the purchase price. Do you need the money liquid? No, like nobody writes a $3 million check for a business right there. And so he was able to finance it. But the point was, is he was going to miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime for him in his industry because he had self-selected. Nope, this isn't for me. Nope. I don't have what it takes. And we all do that, right? We all do it, but let's talk about that from a real estate point of view, right? Because I hear people say, I want to manifest my dream home. And I said, well, how many open houses have you been to? And they go, well, I don't have $2 million to buy my $2 million house. And I go, you don't need $2 million to buy a $2 million house or whatever it is. But also you don't know what you'll need and what paperwork you need until you go see a broker. Go do that. You're in the market to buy a house. And the money often doesn't show up until you've stepped into that place of going, okay, now I know what I need. And I'm, I'm, and I've said to them, I mean, real estate brokers, they do not care and agents, it's a numbers game for them. They do not care if looky loos are coming into see a house because they know that sometimes looky loos buy. And, but there's something about if you can't even go and be in that space, in that room, in that energy of where you want to live for free, how do you, that's just a fundamental door shut that you have shut yourself. And I've bought so many properties where I did not have the money until I stood on that land and went, I went, I need to find the money. And I've gone and done a launch because I stood on that land and I, you know, and I put myself and then I was like, I'm going to, and I said to, I remember saying to my financial advisors one time, they said, you can't buy a farm because you're already building a dream house by the beach. And I was like, guys, tell me how much money I need. I'll go away and get the money and I'll come and bring it back. And I had this vision of myself just having this sack of money, just going, here you go. Of course, it didn't happen like that. I went and did a launch and every, it gave me this, you know, every day I just thought the more personal messages that I send or the more emails, this is another person. I was starting to, I was pre-writing the welcome cards. Every single card, this is $2,000 towards my dream. And it's not like then I was going, oh, I'm exploiting all these people. I was going, I get to help people and I get to have this dream. But that came from standing on the land. So anyone listening, you've got to put yourself in those spaces because then that opens the portal for the money and the ideas rather than waiting for them the money to come. And then, oh, then I'll go and look at my dream house, which I know I'm sure you've bought houses that you didn't have the money for as well. Sure. And you're absolutely, I'm thinking about one of the houses that we bought. I was a loan officer for years in my twenties and I'd worked with a, a builder and long story short, he got into a financial pickle and he's like, oh, I, I haven't launched. They, they were kind of these semi-custom homes up on the hill. And it wasn't a house that I would ordinarily buy at that time. But he's like, I can't open up the sort of subdivision without an infusion of cash. And so long story short, I'm like, well, I'll give you an infusion in cash if you sell it to us for half the price. He did. So we ended up with this house that he 
And it was like the test house. So he kept putting all these fireplaces and balconies and all these like interesting, this wine room and all these, which I was like, I don't know, 25 or something at the time. So we just thought it was the most amazing thing ever. We became quite the party house and we got a disco ball. Anyways, <laughs> we had some amazing parties there, but it was not a house I would have ordinarily purchased, but then going there and seeing the opportunity and saying, asking the question, how can I, instead of no, I can't, instead asking the question, how can I, what would that look like? What would I have to negotiate? What would I need to bring to the table? What would I need to give up or add to? What would he need to give up or add to? And, and that's, that's what makes stuff like that happen. I love that. Again, you said this concept of I can both serve my people. So you said I went and did this launch and I had a $2,000 offer at the time. And I think that's so important what you just touched on because people do this either or, and we've got to live in the and like, well, I really, I'm doing it for the right reasons, or I don't really care about the money or I, and that's a great way to run what ends up being a nonprofit. But if you're in a for-profit business and you want to continue, and the thing I tell people is if you want to continue to serve people at this level, you serve them so much better when you stand on this foundation of success and you're not worried about paying your mortgage or your car or your kid's school or whatever else is kind of keeping you up at night. You can't serve your people wholly. You can't show up for your audience or your readers or, or whoever it is if you're not in a position of strength and abundance, I mean, that just, it, it under- No, you don't have the bandwidth. No, you don't. You don't have it. I have to tell you this story. It's in my book, those of you who read my book, but it was when we really stretched to buy this land, which is near the beach, which we built our house on. And I was feeling really sick about it because I realized I had all these stories about, I'm not allowed to live near the beach until I've retired. Like I'm not allowed to live in that wealthy neighborhood until I'm older. And it was all swirling around and we were going to pick up the keys and I was just feeling sick about it. And we were driving there and I was, I was like, Ugh. and I said to Mark, we're going to have to really tighten our belts next year. Cause I thought I have to sacrifice something. I can't have this and feel abundant. I have to feel shit about this. Like I have to feel so stressed about it. And I just said, oh, we have to really tighten our belts. And he looked at me and goes, that doesn't sound like you. And I went, you're right. There's always more money. There's always more money. And as I said that, a shower of money hit our car as we're driving. Literally a shower of money hit our car. And so $50 notes in Australia are bright yellow, we call them pineapples. And it was like $1,000 worth hit our windscreen. And his windscreen turned on because he had automatic wipers. And we both screamed because we just went, ah! and we we're like, what actually happened? He goes, should I pull over? And I'm like, no, because there was money going all over the freeway. And I just, I still don't know to this day what happened if someone acts. Like imagine you saying to your kid, oh, we're going to buy a car in cash. You hold on to the money and it just goes out the window. It must've been something like that. I've never heard anyone mention it in my town, but it was just this hilarious lesson from the universe. There's always more money. And I, I always say that there's always more clients. There's always another hair elastic somewhere in your house or in your car. So don't stress, it's there. And there's always more opportunities to help people. And there's always, even in times of uncertainty and recession, there's always companies and people who are doing well and they need your help too. And then you can serve them and it gives you bandwidth to then help the people who aren't doing well in bad economies. So there's that feeling of abundance is not being delusional. It's just going, there's always another solution somewhere. 
And I mean, I drive past that road all the time and I always remember that lesson because I think there's got to be a $50 note somewhere in that bush. Like someone's got to be, there's got to be. So, or someone pulled over and like went all over it. That's you're like, this was not in the secret. Like this did, I mean, talk about manifesting the money just flies at you in that exact moment. That's, so, yeah, that's a, good a hell of a story. So if someone is listening right now, and then we got to talk about the money archetypes, but I mentioned, you know, someone's listening and they want to increase their offer. And, you know, the gal that I mentioned, you know, that's waffling again, and she's in a group of other people that have much higher priced offers and some that have lower priced offers. If you were sitting down with someone like that and she's struggling with, and she literally said, who's going to buy this offer at this price? What would you say to someone like that? Yeah. There's a couple pricing is so layered, right? There's so many factors here. One is I realized that when I undercharged for something like speaking, I used to only speak at friends events because I had this whole thing about speaking and charging for it. Cause I was like, I don't really like it. I don't really prepare. So therefore I'm not allowed to charge good prices for it. So I'll only speak in friendly rooms with friends and I'll just do it for free. And what I realized is I actually felt the imbalance in my body and in my energy, because I would come away from those interactions feeling really sick and tired. And, and I went, oh, when it's an imbalance, it's got to come from somewhere. And so it's coming from me. And so that's the thing is pricing has to feel energetically win-win. And the problem is we often think that someone else has got the answer for us. So we ask people, hey guys, I've got this program. It's got this amount of PDFs. It's got this many videos. What should I charge for it? And there's no right answer. And this is the most frustrating thing is that we think that someone else must have this formula that would give us legitimacy. And we think that somewhere out there is a critic proof price. Oh, say that again. Say that again. That was gold. We think that somewhere out there is a critic proof price. And so we drive ourselves mad trying to find it. And it is the, it's an enigma. It does not exist. And you could test this, right? You could you can have a very high value ebook. You can give it away for free in exchange for an email address. And I saw this happen just this week. Someone said, it's not free if you're asking something in return for it. <laughs> what? You're asking email address. Do I have to just telepathically send it to you? Let me just download it from my brain to your brain. You could charge a dollar for it. Someone will say, oh my God, this is so much value. You should be charging $100 for it. And someone will say, a dollar, how dare you? Absolutely. How dare you? If you really cared about this, you would do it for free. And then what I found is you take the prices up. It's just the same amount of work to sell a $10 ebook sometimes as it is a $100 course or a $1,000 course. The numbers play out exactly the same. Conversion-wise, it's just that it will be slightly different people who will buy each offer. And so there's no critic-proof price. You can't crowdsource your prices because you'll get all different information. It has to feel energetically win-win. And you have to come up with it because everyone else is pulling it out of their own butt too. And if <laughs> so you true. average out what other people are charging, you're just taking on their money blocks. You're taking on what their dad said to you about money. Ooh. Uh, sorry, about their, their, about their money, about what their third grade teacher said to them about their math skills. You are just taking on all of those. And I, I try and visualize it as a little backpack. We're all carrying around our own money blocks. Sometimes they're heavier than others. That's fine. But what we do when we crowdsource, when we take other people's advice as gospel, we're just, oh, oh, let me take on your money box too. I'll carry those around. And it's so tricky because you have to come up with it yourself and you're allowed to change it. As soon as you feel resentful, as soon as you feel the energy imbalance, it's okay for you to, to do that again. And 
Kendall Summerhawk, who's one of my mentors, who actually is the creator of The Money Archetypes, she taught me just to sit and think about the price and just sit with it and then go up by 10% and then 10% and 10%. And at some point you'll hit a number that feels a little bit exciting, a little bit scary. And then you try it out. You try it out and that's it. And as soon as it doesn't feel okay again, change it. And I, I know what it's like to hear that answer and go, no, but just tell me, just give me the spreadsheet just give me a number. Formula. Yeah. Just tell me. And I actually, even sometimes when I'm not sure, I'll put in it, I'll put a couple of numbers into a random num- number generator and see what it spits out and go, oh yeah, I can do that. Oh, yeah, how's that? that? Yeah. I mean, here, here's the thing. I've worked with speakers that charge 5k for a 60 minute keynote. And I've worked with speakers that charge hundred K for a 60 minute keynote. Both of the keynotes were good. It's not necessarily tied to quality there. Usually there's quality across the board. It's that someone's got some personal hang up, some money block, or some way that they self sabotage that's getting in the way of the higher price point. Ah, oh, we could talk Absolutely. about this really. Well, no, let me tell you real quick what my one of mine was. The first speaking gig I ever ever got, someone called me out of the blue because they saw my website and it was a local council meeting that they were doing their away day. So it's, not my. It's definitely going to be bad, me, right? but okay. <laughs> Low dollar. <laughs> yeah. She goes, what's your fee? Oh, I love your mug, by the way. Wonder Woman mug. Oh, yeah. She said, what's your speaking fee? And I was at a shopping center walking around and I went, what's your budget? And she said, oh, $500. And I went, what a coincidence. That's my fee. Because I had no idea what to charge. And I was so, I was so happy. And I said to my mom, I said, that was a lady. She wants me to come and speak and do a 45-minute keynote and she's going to pay me $500. And I was just like, my mom looked at me and she goes, that's my weekly salary at the nursing home. And I felt like such, I just felt horrible. I felt so guilty. And I'm like, who am I to get paid $500 for 45 minutes of talking to people? And so it took me a long time to get over that of going, God, the prices you can make in this, you know, that's insane. Like that's so inappropriate. And it took me, I reckon, years and years after that to charge again for speaking. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of that comes from, we assume that if we have a larger slice of the pie, then that means somebody else doesn't eat. And so if they're charging me $500, if they're paying me $500 for 45 minutes of my speaking, that must be why my mom only gets paid $500 for a week of no doubt backbreaking work at a nursing home. Literally. Yeah. yeah. And so we connect these two things that aren't necessarily aren't necessarily connected. And you know what? So cool. I financially support my mom now. So my mom It all worked she, out. She lives with us part-time and she has a motor home. So she comes and like when she gets sick of us, she just goes, bye. And she travels off and I pay her a salary every week and she doesn't have to work. And she hasn't had to work for six years now. Think about what an opportunity that you had. I mean, if you would have listened to your money blocks, if you would have gotten up in your head or sabotaged that speaking opportunity or all of the subsequent opportunities that have happened for you, if you would have not done that because you would have thought, oh, if I get that big slice of pie, people like my mom won't get theirs. In actuality, you getting a large slice of the pie allowed you to serve so many other people. I'm so glad that you said yes, because- it would have been very easy for you to go, no, that's not for me. Or who am I to make that kind of money? Absolutely. And and we support Mark's mom too. She's also, you know, being a single mom her whole life. And so that feeling of the ripples of abundance that you can create. I mean, my mom didn't have these opportunities. Her mom didn't have those opportunities. 
And so I often think of my grandmother. She died when I was 25, right? Before I had any success, but we went on this road trip once and I was listening to like Zig Ziglar or something for this whole time. And at the end, she was kind of like, I think you could do this, you know? And she never got to see me be successful. But whenever I am afraid, which I am all the time, I always think of her just going, so someone's going to be mean to you on the internet? Who cares? Like, and that really helps. Just any reason not to get out there? Yes. Yes. Because that's how, that's often what it is, right? Oh, what if people don't like me? Imagine your grandmother going, well, I didn't get to have any opportunities. I had to, you know, I had to do all of these things because I wasn't allowed to have a job. I wasn't allowed to have a bank account. And so I think of her, you know, patting me on the back and just going, oh, who cares? People don't like you. That's fine. Yeah. Denise, have you fully appreciated the fact that you did break the cycle in your generation? Like you have kids and that they are going to be raised with completely different belief systems because of the work you've done? Yes. And because now I feel like I've got more compassion for my mom because she had ADHD too. And so some of the things that I internalized as neglect because of the, you know, the other situations that were happening, I'm like, I forget to order my kids lunch too. I sometimes am running late. And so it's given me a new compassion and also compassion for myself of going, I'm going to give them money blocks too. <laughs> They're just going to be slightly different ones. But what's fascinating is my daughter, Willow, I said something recently. She's like, well, why can't we have this thing? And I said, well, you can't just, I don't know. I was like, you can't just buy stuff. From, she goes, just write another book and then pay for it. And I, I was like, oh my God, I've taught you too well. <laughs> It's a combination of like, I'm impressed with your ingenuity. Oh, or am, am I going to make an entitled kid? It's it's a fine line to walk, right? Well, absolutely. Because in her mind, she's seen my books in bookstores since she was born. I say, well, that's my friend and that's my friend. And she's just like, oh, well, I'll have a book in a bookstore too. And obviously, you know, books make you wealthy. And so I remember one time we were shopping and she's like, well, why can't I have this thing? You're a millionaire. And I was, my mom was with us too. And my mom said, yeah, but Willow, you're not a millionaire. And I always try and say to them, I'm like, well, I don't want you guys to be spoiled. And so I think my mom could legitimately say, I don't have the money. I have to be a bit more creative and, and say, well, in our family, you know, we don't just buy plastic stuff for no reason because it's not good for landfill. So I'm a big thrifter and I say to them, you know, if you donate stuff when we go, you can get a dollar credit to spend there. And, you know, I'm going to give them different money blocks than my mom gave me. So, yeah. Yeah. But I just think that what, one of the things that you're showing them is not just about the pursuit of wealth or the accumulation of wealth, that anything is possible. That's what I'm hearing is that you're someone who has ran through brick wall after brick wall, and you're showing them that that's possible too, whether it's finance or something else. For sure. And I, I, I know I have some stories there too about, well, I'm only resilient and hardworking and creative because I grew up poor. And so are they, and I go, oh my God, if I had grown up with more stability, I was such a creative kid. I didn't have a lot of bandwidth to be even more creative. And so I'm seeing my kids, they're creating for the fun and the joy of it. And it's just, it's beautiful to watch. And my daughter is like, I'm going to be an artist, a dancer, and an author. And I'm like, great, babe. That's cool. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Our podcast manager, Ben Williams, he told a story not too long ago about his son and that he really admired what his son did. His son, Jackson, I think he's like seven. He had drawn a picture and it was really good. And he showed it to his grandfather and his grandfather looked at it. So Ben's father looks at it and goes, wow, that's, 
that's really good. He's like, you know, you keep practicing like this. You could be an artist one day. And his son looks at the grandfather and says, I am an artist. He said, I was so proud of him at that moment because he's just like, no, 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 there's no more practice. Like I'm already an artist. I'm already walking the path. And I was like, that was beautiful. Beautifully said. Oh, Willow did that to me recently. We were driving around where our farm is. And I said, oh, if that ever comes up to sale, I'd love to buy that. And she goes, when it comes up to sale, you'll buy it. I went, <laughs> My oh, kids do the me. same thing. They do the awesome. same thing. We were having dinner last night. We were talking about something. I have a nine-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter. And I think it was last night. We were talking about something. And we've talked about the concept of the gap in the gain. Like you can look at where, where the gaps are or how far you've come, the gain. And I said something and I think it was my nine-year-old said, are you living in the gap, mom? And I was like, wow, I have really brought you guys up in an environment with personal development, which again, you're trying to show them anything is possible. And it doesn't matter if it's if it's money or if you want to be a great rock climber or skier or an artist, it doesn't matter. It's just, you can do it with consistent application and believing it's possible. You can do it. So whenever they call me out on their stuff, I was like, well, I guess I've taught you well. And they're always listening. And that whole thing too about, we grew up hearing, if you work, you know, you have to work really hard. And I think that's been quite damaging. So I think what you just said too, I, I always say to them, if you've got a dream and you're persistent, you can achieve anything rather than saying if you work really hard, because we know that that's not true. You know, the people who work the hardest in society aren't the richest. So yeah, that persistence and having a dream, I think is really, and it's just a nice little switch, switch of how to talk to your kids about stuff. And there's two other things too. One is at birthday parties, don't say to them, make a wish, but don't tell anyone or it won't come true because I see adults, they cannot tell people their goals. That's something that we can all switch easily. It's so I ingrained. Never connected those two. It's so ingrained. Movies, TV, everything. And like every birthday party, make a wish. Don't don't tell anyone it won't come true. And I always say, in our family, we do tell each other our goals and dreams so we can help each other make them come true. That little thing. And then for little kids too, you know, don't put that in your mouth. Money is dirty. It's just such a nervous system shock, I think. And I didn't realize I'd already been teaching money mindset for years before I did that with my first kid. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. So then we say, we go, in our family, we take care of money. I just try and neutralize a lot of things instead of making things a big deal of going, I don't have, I go, oh, I love that. I don't have any coins on me today. Just, I just try and make money because we don't know how, how work and things are going to change for them. So I'm just like, I'm just going to try not to give them the stuff that I got and then they'll Mm -hmm. find their own. They'll find their own. They'll be in therapy for something else. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to minimize how much my name comes up in therapy. That's all I'm going for right now. That's so true. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting is I'd be curious what your kids, what the like word association, what their first word is associated with money. Well, this is funny because I have a podcast myself and I was in the podcast studio yesterday and I had this great idea. I said to Mark, why don't you bring them in at the end and I can interview them about money? And it was a shit show. Was it? They, they couldn't stop touching the microphone. They were shuffling. They were giggling. They were, oh, it was a nightmare because I thought, oh, I'm going to ask them, you know, what do you think about money? And Piper, who's my four and a half year old, she goes, I'm a money magnet because she finds little coins everywhere. I'm a money magnet. I love it. Yeah. And then I was like, well, what do you, what do you want to do when you're grown up? All that stuff. And it was like an astronaut. And so it was a total, total mess. But my nine-year-old, she came home one day and she said, my friend said that money is a rude word. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, I mentioned money. And my friend was like, no, you're not allowed to talk about money. And she goes, no, 
remember and I told her that you aren't allowed to talk about money and money's just a tool and all that kind of stuff. So I think they're just trying to. So good. You know, yeah. And it's hard because I want them to be aware of their privilege and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll mess it up. We will. We totally will. We'll do all the things that we know to do right. And we just have to understand there's a good 20% that we don't know about and we'll do it wrong or something will change. And, and that's, I I read a study recently that you only have to get it right in parenting 30% of the time. And I was like, all right, we're doing good. We just need to get it right 30% of the time. I heard another one too, that just 10 minutes of like intense one-on-one time with each kid is enough. I'm like, 10 minutes, I can do 10 minutes. All right. 10 minutes is fine. We we call it a special time in our household, <laughs> minimum effective dose. I love it. Minimum viable product. What's my MVP with my kids? We do that we, where it's like, it's only one-on-one two daughters. So there's civil rivalry that definitely happens. And so we're like, all right, for this amount of time, what is it that you want to talk about? What is it you want to do? And sometimes it's drawing together. Sometimes it's looking at the Roblox world. That is definitely a thing. Ooh. And like, let, let me show you this sheet that looks a lot like a wall, which also looks like the waterfall. And so whatever it is that they want to do, so they see, feel seen, heard and valued, we, we set that time apart and it makes such a difference, which is so different than trying to have a chat with your kids when you're picking them up from school or you're making dinner. It's not intentional time. So setting aside time like that and they know about it and they get to anticipate it. And it's like, all right, what did you want to do? What did you want to talk about? It really makes a difference to your kids. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have one final question we asked, but before I ask that question, where is the best place for a pivoter to get in touch with you? Oh, well, thank you for asking for that. I really appreciate it. So I'm at denisedt.com. That's my website. I've got a ton of resources for people around pricing, money blocks, all of those things. And then my social media handles everywhere are at Denise DT as well. So Insta and Facebook and Twitter. So I'm super, super easy to find. And I'm so curious, right? I love when people tell me their money stories because it just gives me more examples and nuances of how it all shows up differently for different people. So feel free to send me a DM or tag me. But And, and then my books are available all over the place too. So my latest book is called Chill and Prosper, and it's about making business easy so it can work for you. Oh, I love it. We'll put all the links in the show notes. The other thing I'm thinking is we need to have you come in and speak to the Pivot Me Academy because we've talked about money blocks and and they said, we need to, we really need to dig into this because again, they've they've all achieved a level of success, but there comes a point where performance and goal setting and things like that aren't really what's holding us back. I suspect that you might be the key to this. So we'll have to bring you in to talk to them as well. And I'd love to talk about the archetypes too, because it's just, it's so fun. It's really, really fun to be able to have that new lens to be able to see people. Cause now I meet people and I go, Oh, yep. I can see it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Yep. You're a connector. Cool. And then I change the words I use. It's like Enneagram, but for money though. Okay. I love it. I, I love Let's that. Connect connector. It makes so much is as you're saying it, I'm like, there I am. There I am. Yep. I hear it. The final question that we always like to ask is if you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? Ah, well, it's the same as Oprah taught me, you know, and it's breaking the cycle is, is really important, but also it's thirsty work, you know, so take care of yourself and be that cycle breaker. And it's kind of like be the change you want to see in the world. Right. And my tagline is make money, change the world. And I do think that that is our responsibility now is this kind of new wave of entrepreneurs is that we have this unlimited opportunity to create abundance for ourselves and our communities 
and we can use that financial power in ways that that really do change the world. I really believe that. And so it's, you know, it's like our time is now to do that and no one can stop you, remember? No one can stop you, no one can force you. So you have to just go, it's my time. Yes. Oh, well said. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your your wisdom and your inspiration. And also, again, showing up honestly and saying, hey, you know, here's the things that I struggled with too. And and here's how I started down this road. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Man, the power of mentors in her life's trajectory were strong, even if it was a mentor she never met, like Oprah. And let me just say, this is not the first time I've interviewed a very successful person. And when they look back through their history, we find a story about Oprah. Watching her seem to sort of give people this, watching her success, they got this messaging about, you know, you've got the courage, the inspiration. And I think she gave a lot of people permission to pursue their dreams. And though Oprah wasn't really on my radar when I was younger, I feel like I may have missed out on that. Like I could have been further faster if Oprah was in my ear too. Love that she tied it back to her. So let's recap on some of Denise's highlights. I loved when she said, you can't crowdsource your price too much. Obviously, that's assuming you are not in a commodity business, but ultimately, these are things you have to decide yourself. She said, there is no critic-proof price, meaning the critics will come regardless of the price point you land on. Pick the one that feels right for you. I also love when she said, get away from the this or that thinking, this sort of binary thinking. I can make a big impact on people's lives or I can make a lot of money. Live in the and, not the or. And the simple advice that she gave towards the end when she said, hey, when when you've got a kid that's making a wish at their birthday, tell them to share that wish. Don't tell them that, hey, if you tell people it won't come true, that it's literally the opposite of the messaging we want to give people. And I wonder how much that is correlated. Like we do tell kids this from a very young age and we see as adults, people have a very hard time discussing their wishes, their true hopes, their true dreams. They have the kind of surface level ones that they're willing to share, but the things that really matter most, I find a lot of people hold back. They're scared to say them, scared to admit that that's really what they want. Maybe it's some fear that it won't come true. I don't know if they're connected, but I do think that this is a good practice. Let's get our kids to tell their wishes so we can support them in their hopes. Simple but brilliant. For now, go connect with Denise. She's Denise DT on most platforms on social media. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. And hey, for now, go get rich, you lucky bitch. Have a great day. Thank you so much for dialing in today. And don't forget, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you love what you hear, give us a five-star review. It means the world to us. Hit me up on Instagram at the April Garcia or check us out online at pivot-me.com. This is all made possible with the support of you listeners, the numerous contributors and our clients. Our music and production is by the amazing Rockwood Audio. Join me next time for more tips on how to hack success. And until then, make it a great day. Thanks, guys. You guys are amazing.